Good morning, church. Um, today's scripture is found in Psalms 51. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your works and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, your delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls would be offered on your altar. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. Um, my name is Stephen Coppenrath. I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you visit the last two weeks, I haven't been here. And so I've been on uh, just a couple weeks of vacation, which, uh, to be honest, is kind of a new, new kind of relationship that I'm having with uh, time off and all that. And so especially in this context and this season of life. And so uh, thank you for allowing me to do that. Uh, not that I asked you, but I, I did it anyway. Um, but I heard that there were some great uh, messages that you heard and just great community that happened in the last couple weeks of July. Uh, while I was gone. So glad to know things still went uh, great in my absence. Um, well, hey, uh, we are back in Psalms actually for the last week. Uh, Psalm 51 will close out here. And um, here's kind of what I'm thinking about Psalms, by the way, if I haven't mentioned this already. We, we will likely come back to Psalms each summer and just kind of uh, pick a few more Psalms out, talk through those, uh, be encouraged by those, uh, those songs of renewal and really how the Lord is speaking um, into our own hearts through uh, David and the other writers of Psalms. And so uh, we're going to wrap, wrap up with Psalm 51 for, for us at Kings this summer. And then next week, we'll jump into a new series uh, just about the mission of the church and about kind of what we're up to this fall. And so looking forward to that. Um, psalm 51, as we consider this psalm, I'm going to ask you this question uh, or just kind of pose this scenario for you anyway. Uh, what if I told you that no matter how much 
that you messed up your life, no matter how many mistakes you've made uh, throughout your lifetime, that there was hope for you. Wouldn't that be good news for us? Um, that there's a way uh, that you are free by the grace of God to come clean. And that's, that's kind of the pathway to do that. And the Bible shows us how we are to come clean before the Lord uh, through passages like Psalm 51. Now, let me preface this all by saying it's not very fun to stare our sin in the face, is it? It's not very fun to do that. Um, in fact, sometimes we don't like to look very long. Uh, we don't like to... Uh, it's easy to look away. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. You try to distance yourself oftentimes from sin. Even think about just uh, sin against one another. Uh, my, my kids experience this often. It's like someone does something wrong. It's clear. It's in black and white. Hey, apologize to sister. Apologize to brother. And they don't even want to look at them in the eyes, right? There's just this like, I just move on. Let's move on from the situation as fast as possible. Uh, it reminds me of that series uh, back in the 90s, 2000s, Fear Factor. You guys ever watch that show Fear Factor before, anybody? Okay, so um, if you want to go on a YouTube binge, you guys can check out Fear Factor later on. It's a super weird show, actually. But uh, the whole premise is basically you'd put these contestants in these situations that were very uncomfortable, very hard to deal with. And they were to be face-to-face -face with their fears. And so oftentimes their fears were boiled down to things like laying down in a tube, being filled up with spiders and snakes, right? Stuff like that. Or other times it was like eating gross things like insects or like animal brains or things like that. And it always ended with some type of jumping off of a high ledge, like facing your fear of heights. And I, there's kind of this sense when you watch the show, it's like you want to watch it, but it's also kind of uncomfortable to watch. Right? That's also, you're like fascinated by how people are going to deal with these facing their fears, but it's also not quite uh, a good feeling to watch people interact with things that they don't want to face. And I think sometimes it's, it's easy to do that in the Christian life. Right? Sometimes it's better to, easier to close your eyes, to switch the channel. It's easier to turn a blind eye to our sin, to hard things in our life, to avoid painful things, even if we know that that pain will eventually produce fruit. And I think that's what we see in Scripture this morning, that oftentimes when we face the pain of repentance, there's actually fruit that is born of, of that experience. And the book of Psalms does not turn a blind eye to awkward or painful things. The book of Psalms does not turn a blind eye to sin. And David, king of Israel, was very familiar with this. I want to point out um, the, the title and the description of the psalm in Psalm 51. It says, created me... A clean heart, O God. And then it says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This psalm comes to us from a very specific time, a very specific moment in David's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David was supposed to be at war. It says that, that at the time when kings went off to war and David is stuck at home, he's uh, decided to stay home and not be with his men. And David has shirked his responsibility, and one night he sees a woman bathing on the roof. He coveted after her. He took her. He committed adultery with her. He got her pregnant, and to cover up the whole secret, he had her husband, Uriah, sent to the front line of, of where the, the fighting is happening, and so he would, he would perish. And so he hasn't killed. He hasn't murdered. I mean, guys, who needs HBO, right, when you, need, when you have the Bible? It's like, 
This is crazy stuff. This is in the Bible. David breaks five out of the Ten Commandments in one chapter of the Bible. And he thought he'd gotten away with it. Uh, Alec Matir, in his Psalm devotional, calls Psalm 51 the Old Testament central text on personal repentance. And that's what David is doing here in Psalm 51, repentance. And repentance, if you aren't familiar with that phrase, it's simply this. It's turning from sin and turning back to God. It's literally this idea of you were headed one way. You were walking in one direction, and you don't do a 360, but you do a 180, right? And you turn completely the opposite way and start walking the opposite way that you, you were going. And, and so that's what we see here in Psalm 51. Now, before we walk through this passage, uh, let's talk about how we got here in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan confronts David over his sin. 2 Samuel 12, in verse 1, uh, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. So Nathan goes. Nathan's the high priest, and he obeys. He's mustering all kinds of courage to go and confront a king. A king, by the way, who has just shown his true colors. He has just shown that he is very capable of deception and murder when things don't go his way. So if you're Nathan, this is not just another day at work, right? Like he's not just some UPS guy dropping off a package, right? Like, and, and getting out of there. Nathan has been commissioned to confront a king. And the Lord uses Nathan to sober up David, to shake him from his sin and to point him towards repentance. And he does it by telling him a story. A story that riles David up, that gets him frustrated and angry. And Nathan says, look, David, if you want to be angry at anyone, look in the mirror. Because you are the bad guy in the story I just told. That's what happens in 2 Samuel 12. And in verse 13, it says this. It says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan responds and says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I don't want you to miss this, and this isn't even a point in my sermon, but we get, what we get here is this repentance from David in Psalm 51 because Nathan is courageous and cared enough about his king to confront him in the first place. And so just a side note, listen, many of you have deep friendships, deep relationships. Some of you are sitting next to people that you do life with every day, and I would just encourage you, if you are prompted to courageously confront the sin of a brother or sister in Christ, Nathan has already showed us the way. This is the way we're supposed to live in community. When sin is on us, we rely on people like Nathan. So I, I think there is this increased temptation to turn from God, to not look at difficult things, to face the pain of repentance, but this is exactly where the fruit can be found as well. So David presents the way forward in Psalm 51. He chooses the path of repentance. Full disclosure, right? David needed to come clean, and you need to come clean too. And when we do, it's important to not turn inward to our thoughts and our work, like, man, how am I going to get out of this? But we turn to God and remember his work on our behalf. This is exactly what David does. So let's jump in. Psalm 51, the first point 
I want you to, to write down, if you're taking notes, is, is simply this. Turn our attention to God. How do we repent? How do we enjoy the pain and fruit of repentance? Number one, turn our attention to God. Verse one says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, I want you to see how David rightly approaches the sin in his life. He applies God's perfect character to his own lack of character. That's how he starts in verse 1. David knows what he has done, but he also recognizes who God is. And so he says, look, what I've done is I've screwed up. I've made a mess of my life. But God, would you apply your perfect righteousness, your perfect character to my screwed up life? And he asks for mercy. Not because of any merit that he has in himself, but according to who God is, he asks for mercy according to God's steadfast love according to God's abundant mercy. He goes to God and says, you are my source of life. Will you carry me in this season? Will you blot out my sin? And God does exactly that, but David has to turn to God first. He has to admit that he needs help first. And maybe this is a place where you're at in life where you are in the middle of sin and you don't know the next step forward. And I just want to encourage you, the first step is to turn to God and say, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I I need your assistance. I can't go about life the way that I'm doing it on my own. Um, The last couple of weeks, I got to go snorkeling. And anybody ever been snorkeling before? Not scuba diving, but snorkeling, okay? Yeah, it was my first time uh, going snorkeling, and I, it didn't go as I thought it would go, okay? Just, I'll say that right off the bat. So they offer you a snorkel, they offer you a face mask and a life vest, and in hindsight, here's where I realized things went wrong. Uh, when they offered me those things, I asked, is the life vest, like, optional, or is it, like, important? Like, and he's like, well, if you're a good swimmer, like, you don't have to wear it. That's fine. I'm like, yeah, I'm a pretty good swimmer. I'm a pretty good swimmer. So... So no one else in this little 10-person lifeboat or this little boat that they have has, uh, everybody else has a life vest except for me, okay? So I should have, like, kind of realized that to start with. Um, and so, you know, when I was a kid, by the way, I was a good swimmer, okay? So, like, ages, like, 8 to 12, swim team. And to be honest, I still think I'm a good swimmer, okay? So fast forward to snorkeling, yeah, like, I'm a, re- I'm a strong swimmer, like, real strong, all right? So we get to the spot where the snorkeling starts. People jump into the water. Everyone looks kind of dumb with a snorkel, right? That's just part of the deal. Kind of floating around, bobbing around. Everyone's doing great. They have this five-year-old kid who's doing great, right? Just killing it, uh, snorkeling. So I'm sitting on the boat. I'm one of the last ones in the water, trying to adjust my face mask just to fit right. And I start to realize the physics of what's required of me in snorkeling. I'm supposed to float. I'm supposed to breathe out of this tube and look down while there's like waves splashing because there's a bunch of boats that all at the same place, right, all at the same time. And I start to panic when I jump in the water immediately because I realize that I have to do all these four things at the same time, plus I don't have a life vest on. And so I'm like, I'm going to drown, right? Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die right now. Uh, the water's going. And I, I, of course I'm not going to drown, but I'm panicking, and I'm thinking, man, maybe my equipment is faulty. I look around at everybody else. Everyone else is just having a great time. Uh, and, and so I realized, like, i got to throw my hand up and ask for help. I, I, I have to put my hands up and be the only noob out there who's like, hey, I need a life vest, okay? I need some help 
um, out there. And everybody else was like, do you see the fish? It's so cool. It's so I'm like, I didn't see your stupid fish. Like, I couldn't care less. It doesn't take me long to ask for help. Now, eventually, I get a life vest on. Around the two-hour mark, I start to enjoy snorkeling. I start to enjoy it. It's great. I see some stingrays. I see some cool fish. Um, it was a good experience. Now, maybe you've had an experience like that before where you come face-to-face with your own limitations. And, and here's what we tend to do. Here's what I tend to do. When I come against hard things, oftentimes what I do is just quit, actually. I don't, I don't even ask for help. I'd rather quit than ask for help. But, but what I think Scripture points out often, and I think what the character of, of David that we see here is that what we need to do is ask for help. What we need to do is, is put our hand up and say, I can't do what I'm being asked to do on my own merit, on my own strength. And when we sin, when we're up against the wall, while our tendency is to fight for air, to allow panic to set in, we usually don't turn to God and ask for help. And so in writing Psalm 51, David has just experienced that same fight, that same panic. And he realizes what he's done with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he's avoiding it, and he's seeking to cover it up, and he's seeking to work on his own merit to try and fix the mistake. And he feels this full weight of God's conviction. And finally, we see here, David turns to the Lord, and he looks up at God and says, help me. I I need you first. Not because David is heroic, but because of who he knows God to be. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. God, you and you alone are able to do this. Not, not, not me on my own strength. And perhaps you are in a similar spot this morning. And if you are, I would encourage you to follow in David's footsteps and turn to the Lord first. Here's the second thing. Number two, don't make excuses. Own your sin. Don't make excuses. Own your sin. Verses three through six. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David rightly fully owns his stuff. Um, He knows his transgressions. Now it, it does come as a bit of a surprise when he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. I can only imagine, like, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, like, turning in his grave and saying, what if, I'm, you kind of sinned against me, too. Uh, but what David has realized in trying to cover up his sins is that ultimately all of his transgressions, all of his unrighteousness is, is, is because, actually, it's against God himself that he's sinned. It was against God. And so David is not trying to make excuses, but he fully acknowledges that he has been sinful from the start. That's why it says in verse 5, it says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and it sinned, and my mother conceived me. By the way, he's not trash-talking his mother uh, when he says, In sin did my mother conceive me. David is confessing what we often struggle with is acknowledging that we have been sinful since the time of conception. Since the start of our life, we have been sinful. And now, I might have said this before to you guys, but 
Remember, if you have ever interacted with a baby or a child before, you know this. Parents, you know this. Uh, babysitters, you know this because you've never had to teach a, a kid to be bad, right? To say mine or to, to hit their brother or sister. You've just never had to say, do as I do. Uh, they just know how to do it. And since the beginning uh, of our lives, we have been sinful. And David recognizes that God has seen our hearts since the start, that he knows the thoughts and he knows the inclinations of our heart. He knows the, all those weird things that we think about, all the, all the passing thoughts that go through our mind, and he's not pleased with what he sees. And David does not point the finger at anyone. He owns it. And he owns what he's done. Listen, church, are we quick to do the same thing in our own lives? I think one of the things that, maybe you agree with me here, we've seen in society more than ever is this kind of this pass-the-buck culture, right? It's like always this sense of like when there's uh, something going wrong in my life, we are quick to throw up a hand and be the victim. And oftentimes, maybe that's true for you. Maybe, maybe you have been victimized. But if we're really honest, how often are we simply just trying to get out of owning responsibility for what we've actually Contributed to. Um, there's a show on Netflix right now called Beef. Maybe you've seen it. Um, I'm not necessarily recommending it. But the whole premise of the show starts with this incident of road rage between two people. And the rest of the show kind of unfolds as they try and get revenge back on one another over and over again. And there, there's kind of like examples of sinful heart like all over the show where, where neither party, all the people in this show, they just won't accept responsibility for their own actions. They are always blaming somebody else for why they ended up the way uh, where they are in life. Two people who are, are messed up and won't own their stuff. And so what happens is nobody is, is made whole as a result. Listen, it's true for my like seven-year-old. It's true for your life. When we reply with, yeah, I hit him because dot, 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 right? Like, unfortunately, that life perspective results in zero restoration. I, I like the translation of uh, the message and how it explains Matthew 7. Matthew 7 says this, don't, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. We've heard that passage before. I, I like how the message kind of frames it. Look, look how, how come nothing is accomplished for God's glory or our good when we approach life in this, this way, where we don't own our sin, where we don't own our mistakes? I've been guilty of this same thing. So I'm, I'm not judging anybody here. I've been guilty of blame shifting, trying to shirk responsibility. David, though, on this day doesn't do it. He doesn't point his fingers at anybody except for himself. And this may be extraordinarily difficult, but I wonder how many of us need to do the same thing, if we're honest, to turn to God, 
to own our sin, and then, and then in that process, apply the good news of the gospel. How faithful are we to apply the gospel? And that's, that's number three this morning. Apply the gospel. This is what we see in verses 7 through 17. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let me stop there. Uh, this is the gospel, church. I, I want you to understand this. And this is not the gospel as far as we would understand it, uh, or maybe even David would understand it. David does not understand what God has done ultimately through Jesus Christ and how Jesus lived a, sinful li- a sinless life, how he was crucified, buried, and rose on the third day. This is before we knew, before David knew he could confess him as Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead to be justified. But what David does understand is what God does for his children. And this is what we see here in these eight or nine verses. We see three things that are available to all of us as we ask the gospel uh, to to be applied to to our sin. So the the first thing we see in these first two verses, the gospel removes our guilt. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. From a, from a literary standpoint, this is, this is beautiful. But I think it hits so hard because so many of us can relate. When we're in sin, the joy is, is gone. And he speaks as though his bones have been physically broken. But we ask to be cleansed, to be purged of his sins, to be cleaned and to be washed. And he knows that despite what he's done, God can make him whiter than snow. This is what is accomplished through the blood and through the death of Jesus for our sins. And David wants that result desperately. Like he's, he's done with his own work. He's, he's done with this crushing weight of conviction. He wants the joy to be back. He wants gladness once again. His spirit has been tormented for, for nights and he's finished with it. He's asked God to, to hide his face from his sins, to look upon his sins no longer, to blot out his iniquities. And some of us remember uh, using whiteout. Remember whiteout? Remember we just had this little jar we'd like, uh, it's kind of like magic, right? Like you make a mistake, you just blot it out. That's what I think about when I, when I see this and how David describes God's ability to blot out his transgressions. It's like whiteout, right? It's like this million dollar idea, just like that. David says, Lord, help me come clean. There's this, this freedom in coming clean, right? Like, you've probably heard this story before. It's one of those kind of urban legend-type stories where, where it's like there's two suspects who are arrested for murder, and all the detectives watch them in the holding cell. And there's one guy who's, like, pacing back and forth and, like, worried and, like, trying to figure out how am I going to get out of the situation. And the other guy is asleep, right, on the, on the mat. And the next morning, they realize, they're like, you know what, I think the guy who's who's asleep on the mat is the guilty one because he's been caught. It's like there's, there's nowhere else for him to go, and he realizes he's at the end of himself, and, and so he has, he has to admit that he has, come, he has to come clean. And David's the same way. He knows what he's done. 
He comes forward and he owns it and he asks God to take away his guilt. If you read on, you will have uh, work to do with earthly relationships as well. You will have earthly consequences to pay for your actions. But David's desire is to be cleansed of his sin. And that's what the gospel does when we apply it. It can also do this other thing. It can also restore relationships. 3B is this. The gospel restores relationships. Let me read from verse 10. Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. The word, the word create, by the way, that David uses is the same word in Genesis chapter 1. And, and David not merely asks for like this kind of reformatted, changed heart. David asks for a new heart, a clean one. He wants a right spirit. He wants to be in a right relationship with God once again. Uh, a relationship where David says, don't cast me away from your presence. I'll allow us to be back in friendship once more. Now, we could technically say that's unfounded, right? Because God is uh, omnipresent. God is everywhere all times. But there's, well, while David understands that theologically, he feels this, this lack of, uh, of being close to God. Uh, as relational beings, we know it's possible to be in relationship with someone and have this big blot fight. And as a result, it's, it's possible to be very close in proximity, but also feel very relationally far apart, right? So David knows up here that God is present. God is everywhere at the same time, but he feels this relational space that separates them. And so verse 11, he says, don't do that to me, God. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Now, as a New Testament church, living under the new covenant of the heart, we understand that when someone confesses, repents, and believes in Jesus we are saved and justified and held in the tight grip of God's hand. But in the Old Testament, for David, this assurance of salvation was not as easily understood. And so what was understood was that the Holy Spirit could be taken from him. Uh, he, he saw that happen in real time like it was with King Saul. And so David says, please, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. David desires to be in relationship once more. I want you to know from the other side, too, that God desires right relationship with us as well. That's an important thing to remember, church. Um, and, and I think I get a glimpse of that in, in, in my parenting, right? Like one of, the, one of my favorite things as a parent, especially when my kids are, were little, when they were like toddlers, and they just freak out and misbehave and disobey, right? They'd hit or take or do something they weren't supposed to and after they had received the appropriate level of discipline, um, I, I always loved it when the drama was done. They came to me and crawled up into my lap and just kind of leaned their head against my chest. And, and so how do I respond as dad? Listen, I never once said, what are you doing? You good-for-nothing scoundrel, right? Like, I, I never once said, get off of me. I'm mad at you still. We have some issues to deal with. No. As a, as a loving dad, we don't, we don't do that. And our, our Heavenly Father, He never refuses one who is willing to own their own sin, ask for forgiveness, and crawl back into His lap. 
And I want you to know this morning that the gospel restores us to relationship with God. He accepts us as sinners as we are because we are cleansed through the perfect work of Jesus. The final thing the gospel does for us is it gives us purpose. The gospel gives us purpose. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen, David failed in an epic way. But instead of trying to hide his failure, instead of trying to keep up appearances, he ultimately used it for a purpose, to teach others the mercy of God. He says he will sing of God's righteousness with his mouth. We all know that David, uh, in addition to being a king, a warrior, a poet, he was also a musician. And so many of the songs that we sing as, as the modern church are based off of psalms that David wrote in an attempt to articulate uh, how, how God is merciful, how God is great and abundant in love for us. And so David's purpose is still being felt even for us today. David will be a public worshiper of God. David will lead the, the charge in worship, and he'll be forthright with this fact that, look, I'm, I'm not all that awesome. I've done horrible things, but my God is great. And I, will, I won't stop until everyone knows that. And David becomes an a evangelist for the mercy of God. Verses 16 and 17 are interesting because David seems to potentially contradict other parts of the Old Testament, saying that, that God does not delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. Both things, by the way, that God commanded the Israelites to do. And David is not challenging the system of sacrifice as they had it, but David recognizes this truth that we've actually talked about quite often in the Gospel of Mark in our, our previous sermon series, that, that God has never been pleased with those who simply go through the motions. Sometimes our worship feels that way. Like it's like we're, it's, it's all show, right? It's all for people that just to see us moving around and singing loud and harmonizing and, and playing instruments. And, and then God looks at our heart behind our actions and they don't line up. And it doesn't say it explicitly, but it's reasonable to think that there was a short period after sin with Bathsheba, after Uriah is murdered. And before he's confronted by Nathan in Psalm 51, there's this window where David potentially actually went on with his life, where he, where he made the right ceremonial sacrifices, where he kind of walked through his kingly duties, and it was a show, right? It was, it was all a farce, continuing to give that impression that all was well, but God knew that it was a show. And David acknowledges here true heart change and desires to be used by God to reach others in the same way. I wonder how many of us, though we're very much physically present in this room, like I can see with my eyes this morning, but how many of us in this room, while we're physically present, are spiritually quite absent? And that's what David's talking about here. 
For you will not delight in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God. You will not despise. Does this describe how you feel in relationship to your sin this morning? Maybe you're sitting beside someone who has no idea what's going on in your life, actually. Maybe in some areas of your life, you're, you're living a double life. Maybe you're doing things that are displeasing the Lord, and we think we can keep it a secret. Listen, church, I don't, I don't simply want to make you feel uncomfortable this morning for the sake of feeling uncomfortable, but what would it look like for us to remember the gospel and apply it to our sin this morning? To ask Jesus to remove the guilt that you feel, to ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation, and to start perhaps for the first time in years to actually sing during worship and mean it. To say with my heart, I was a sinner, but Jesus loves me. And so I'm telling you this morning that a humble sinner, God will not despise. He won't turn you down. And so if you need to return to him, if you do, there's a community waiting for you with open arms. We would love to, to help you and encourage you in that way. And that's our last point this morning. Number four is simply this, join with the others. Look at verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay, so, so what's going on here? How do we do good to Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem? I think what David is saying here is that there is a collective fruit that is born from personal repentance. That there's something that happens in our community collectively uh, when we own up to our personal sin. It leaks outward and, and more into your family, into your church community, and eventually even into your city. And David recognizes and states aloud this dynamic that you and I feel all the time. That whatever level of health that we have with the Lord has a direct correlation with our health in the greater community. Like you're a better community member. You're a better Christian in our church when you have confessed sin openly to the Lord. And so the sacrifices we make, the, the offerings on the altar, move from being this personal charade for God and for people who don't really know us anyway, and it shifts to a community being made whole by healing, confession, and caring for one another. So as we confess... I would encourage you to, even if you're not saying it aloud, that remember we are joining with others to our right and left in confession. When we confess, remember that we are attaching ourselves to people in our own church community who are more concerned with living in truth, living in the light, than keeping up appearances and looking impressive to anyone watching. Like our light and truth is what will be attractive to a world that is dying. Who we are as a community matters. And so for us, listen, as we close, this psalm may simply be a good reminder. When you walked in, you're like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. My walk with the Lord is great. Like, I'm not perfect, but things are going all right. Um, listen, this is a great reminder then. Uh, that, that's great for you. Like, keep doing it. 
Keep confessing sin. Keep living a holy lifestyle. Keep, keep living a life that is sacrificial for other people. But let's be honest. There are a lot of people in this room who maybe feel heavy about these things. I have to imagine there are some who, like David, are sitting under some heavy, weighty conviction and are just wanting to come clean. And there's simply no way you would be able to handle the rough waters that life brings. Um, it's, it's impossible to know where you're at without that right standing relationship with the Lord. And so if that's you, I, I have two things to say in closing. First of all, if you, if you need to confess sin, I just want you to know as somebody who's done that personally, it is always worth it. It's always worth it. The, the weight of sin is not something you can carry throughout your life. And so I would encourage you to turn to God, own your sin, remember the gospel. Your life may hit the fan at that point, okay? We're not promised that consequences won't be there. Earthly relationships might suffer, but there is a joy that your spirit will find in no other way other than confession. The second thing that I want to just remind you is that we will walk with you in the days ahead. If you are somebody who needs to confess sin in a relationship, we would love to encourage you to be there with you, to pray for you. Listen, none of us are judging anybody else here. We are all sinful. We have all need for forgiveness. And so this is a room filled with people who are happy to walk alongside you in community as you confess sin in your life. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the story arc of a guy like David. Um, we could spend years studying about his life and about what he's done and accomplished. God, but I'm grateful, Lord, for a reminder this morning uh, for all the, the talent and gifting and ability that David had. He does not have ability to cleanse his own heart. Only you can do that. And so, Lord, may we walk in David's footsteps in this way this morning in Psalm 51, that we confess our sin to you, that we would desire uh, a, a pure spirit, um, a heart that is cleansed and, and made white and pure, Lord. God, would we desire that type of holiness in our life? Would we search um, throughout our, our whole kind of a portfolio of things that we're involved in, everything that we, we do, Lord, when we look for ways that we are potentially displeasing you, not because we want to be perfect, Lord, but because we want to be holy and because that honors you. And Lord, when we find those things, would we, would we deal with those things rightly? Would we come clean, confess? Would we make the step, the courageous step to look our sin in the face, potentially have a hard conversation this week, Lord? because it honors you, because it makes much of you, because uh, there's a world that's looking at how we, we deal with our brokenness. And when we look quite just a little bit different than how the rest of the world deals with our sin, because we know that we can lay our sin at the feet of the cross, knowing that you've paid that price for us already. Help us, Lord, in that. That's not an easy thing. And so give us strength and courage. We pray in your name. Amen.